what are you doing? You just put them on the hamster wheel and wait till they get fit. And then you fucking throw the eggs at the wall and see which ones stick on race day. It was 19th century author Louis Baudry de Saunier that said, the cyclist is a man half made of flesh and half of steel that only our century of science and iron could have spawned. At Half Wheelin', we consider ourselves 100% made of steel. We're unbreakable and we have wisdom that the common man can relate to. Here with me is a man who has the exact same time as me on general classification, Scott Barrow. Welcome, Scotty. Wow. Wow, we. I don't even know what to say with that. That's good. Yeah, look. That's good. Um, and then I was just thinking, you know, is there a way that we could, like, yeah, we're made of steel, but, you know, we're still vulnerable as well. We're still human somehow. Well, it's, Does that it's help us? Bubbling underneath the surface somewhere, mate. I, I, we, like we are, what we're saying is we're incredible, we're amazing, but we're just like you as well. <laughs> we relate to the common man, but we're not really common men. We're going to step above this. Oh, hang on, it's starting to get out of hand now. Mate, I know we've said it just about every episode, but cycling just keeps on giving to us. In particular, well, I don't want to narrow it down to Grand Tours. The Grand Tours have given us heaps this year, but, gee, the racing's been absolutely unbelievable, hasn't it? Yeah, it can't be overstated. It's been spectacular from a spectator's point of view. And then, like I've said this a few times, I'm, I'd be very – I'd love to have a chat with a few riders and say, how how's this season been in terms of the load, you know, because – the density of racing and then the intensity of racing inside the race, you know? Yeah, when they get to the end of their season, I would imagine normally they'd be pretty grateful that it's done. You know, they've done some hard yards, training, all that sort of stuff. Would there be an element of it this year that think, oh, gee, I wouldn't mind just sneaking in another couple of races or yeah, they mm. sort of feel a little bit shortchanged and perhaps could go a little bit longer if they wanted to? Yeah, especially if they had a bit of form, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, you might be like, oh, I'm actually up and about. But I guess the counter to that could be, well, they're finishing later than normal overall, and then they theoretically they might be starting their pre-season the same date. So they might have to look forward a little bit and go, okay, I have to temper that enthusiasm because yeah. of the season that's coming. Is that weird Chinese race happening? Oh. You know, the race that they had, tour, tour of, is it, what do they call it, Tour is of Beijing t- or Tour of China? Tour of Jingyi Lake or is that? Is yeah, that something like that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a world tour race. Tour of the Wuhan province, <laughs> is that? That's not going ahead this year, I don't think, is it? I, and when, when not, we ain't got nothing against China, but, yeah, not many people are keen to take up that travel offer. <laughs> Scotty, the Giro was an absolutely epic, epic race, in particular the finish. I mean, we, we covered a little bit in Episode 7, but, gee whiz, it went down to the wire. Teo Gergenhart uh, eventually come up trumps in the final TT. But uh, our boy, Jai Hindley, uh, I mean, he was superb right to the finish and his climbing was sensational in the last few stages, particularly the Stelvio where, you know, he was super brave and he was basically boxing on the ropes against two of the Ineos guys in, in yeah. Dennis and Gergenhart. He was huge. Mm, yeah. he. Um, I was watching him on the Stelvio and I was like, geez, he's in good form. He just looked like he was... 
like just the, the way it was pedaling on the bike was very efficient. You know, there wasn't much lateral movement of the body. He was just sort of sort of floating up, really. So obviously, you know, he was one of the strongest in the race from on the climb. So it was amazing. And then I listened, and I think you probably heard it too, on, you know, the Stanley Street social podcast. And they interviewed him around that time. Maybe it was a day or two before. Yeah, no, I think it was a few days before that. Maybe on the second rest day, I think they interviewed him. And he was like, his whole mind was blown at that point. That was two-thirds through the race. He, he just couldn't believe what was going on for him, for the team, for Wilco, for everything. He, he just, every time he's asked a question, he's like, oh, man, it's just amazing. I don't know. <laughs> he was like <laughs> he just, a kid in a candy shop, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he just didn't have words. Yeah. And good on him. Yeah. I think I recall in that, in that interview, um, they sort of asked him, you know, where, where to now? You know, what, what does it look like for the next sort of week? And he yeah. said, oh, gee, I wouldn't mind it. You know, I wouldn't mind a good little ride up the Stelvio. That'd be pretty good. Well, yeah. a good little ride turned into a stage win. Actually, just while we're on Stanley Street Social Podcast, I actually interviewed Chris Hamilton a few days later and he was commenting or they asked him about uh, the climbing and, and how they set up that Sunweb train as they were heading yeah. up the Stelvio. And he said, well, we were actually, you know, we were climbing really well. We had the had the line set up and I was at the front, you know, feeling really good and, and um, moving and fast. All of a sudden this freight train called Rowan Dennis just come past me at a, a massive rate of knots and he said it was just unbelievable climbing from Rowan Dennis. He must have been in super form. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I just heard, and I haven't gone and checked this, but I heard it was the fastest time up the Stelvio. So I'm assuming that's not necessarily on Strava, but maybe in racing. I'm not sure. So he's cranked out the fastest time on the Stelvio on the front and then drove it through the valley and up the next climb and then did it the same again the next day. So obviously, you know, it's a put it this way, it's a long way since the Tour de France the year before where he got off the bike mid-stage with, you know, who was that with? Who's the reader you ride with? Was it Barra Mirror? Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's him. Yeah. Gee, it is a long time. Yeah. We can't remember who he's riding for at that point. <laughs> but yeah, talk about um, motivated, in form, enthusiastic, probably liking the team dynamic. You know what I mean? All the good juices flowing for, for all of them in the team. And then he just delivers that. It's phenomenal. But let's not forget, he's a, he's a two time world champ time trialer and you know there was talk there for a while that he might convert to a gc type rider so he's no deal yeah yeah he's certainly got some ability scotty i just want to ask you about the stelvio because you've actually written it and as a outside observer and a fan of the sport to watch it on the television was you can't be any less inspired and gobsmacked at the the sheer sight of it and the epicness of the whole setup Mm. and you see some photos of it and it just looks fake like you think how can that be real Mm. Just to see it and ride it would be another experience altogether, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So when I did it, it was at pretty much at the end of two or three weeks touring over there riding. So I was just sort of just pretty, not blasé about it, but I'd already had amazing riding up until that point. There's um To get to Paso Stelvio, there's sort of three ways up. There's one way from Bormio, there's one way from Prato, which uh, Prato Stelvio, which is the way they came up in this Giro. And then there's one way via the Umbral Pass, which sort of drops eventually down into Switzerland. So there's three ways and they're all amazing. So the way that I did it, there's uh, from Prato, if you like, the climb's like, I don't know, 28 Ks or something like that. I don't know. So if you divide it into like sections of say eight, right, the first eight Ks roughly is about not, it's fairly moderate. And that's where they're sort of going along the river. You would have seen it. And that, it's almost like some of the, the, the road is bridged like a freeway. 
really quite well built road. But at the very start, there's this um, on the right hand side, there's this wooden house, and it's got all these like um, totem poles, like almost like from New Zealand, you know, Maori warriors sort of stuff, or sort of heebie jeebies. And it's like, Jesus Christ, you're riding up the, you know, the the (laughs) mythical Stelvio, and you see that, it's like, God, is that is that an omen? Anyway, so that was happening. So that's about, I don't know, four, five, six, seven percent. And then, as you would have seen on the telecast, then it goes, it sort of cuts back in and starts doing all these, a few switchbacks and goes into the forest. So it's sort of like more pine trees. Yeah, that was pretty distinctive. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's sort of some tight switchbacks and it sort of winds around a bit there. And a lot of those ramps are 10, uh, 11, 12%. And then it backs off a little bit and then there's another ramp. So it's almost constant little ramps through there. And that might go for, I don't know, 8 k's or so. And when I rode it there, that was pretty hard. And then I think I came up on this other guy in our group, because I'm not a fast climber. I came up on this other guy in our group and he was struggling a bit and we sort of rode together. And that was actually good because in my mind, I was, I was sort of I was suffering a little bit on the day, but I was thinking, oh, am I going to just ride this all the way up? Or, you know, if I feel like stopping, will I will I stop and just get off and have a rest or anything like that? You know what I mean? Normally, I'd just go to all the way to the top. But then I thought, shit, I might never come back here again in my life. And this joint is fucking spectacular. <laughs> so I just said to myself, listen, I'm not going to worry about performance pride or ego or, you know, the challenge of getting to the top or anything like that. If I feel like stopping because it's amazing, I fucking will. And I had this guy and he was sort of under the weather a little bit in terms of his suffering a bit. So that helped as well. So that we did stop a couple of times and take some photos. And across the other side, like in the valley from the road where you are, you look the other side and there's these bloody mountains. And it looks like freaking, like it's true mountains. It looks a bit like, I don't know, it looks like the the base of the Himalayas. Like it's real (laughs) rocky mountains with really sharp snow caps and all this sort of stuff. So anyway, that's the middle third. And then you come out of that forest and that's when you get a look at the classical, the switchbacks. Ah, right, yep. And when you look up, it looks like a Buddhist terrace, you know, like um, those houses they have in Tibet because those those switchbacks are just like a ladder. You're looking up and you see them up. You, it looks like a ladder. And in a weird way, I wasn't in- intimidated by that. That was going to be my next question. Were you intimidated yeah. by the sight of that? Because that can be a bit overwhelming sometimes. I think I think times. I struck it like, yeah. I think I struck it lucky on that day because I wasn't pushing really hard because I had this other bloke and I didn't, I wasn't worried about that. But if I'd have been riding on my own and just choosing to do that, just ride as fast and as hard as you can, you can, then that could have been challenging because it's like, fuck, there's a fair bit of vertical still to go. You can see it literally. And you can, it's not hard to see these photos on the internet, but when you're there, you can see it. It's like, shit, you look at your eyes, look up. And it's like, fucking hell, that goes right up. Like you can see it right up vertical. But then you get to those switchbacks and I remember looking at my, um, you know, Garmin or whatever, I'm pretty sure they stayed pretty steady at six, uh, sorry, about seven, seven or eight percent. So that's, for me, that's just where the point where I stop being able to sort of ride up a climb and I have to sort of, you know, push up it, grind up it a little bit. So it wasn't too bad. But then as you get, because the Stelvio at the peak is like 2750 vertical meters high above sea level. So altitude starting to come in and you do well i did feel anyway you do start to feel like everything gets a bit heavier and slower and a bit like a little not that even it's almost like a, the atmosphere just goes up one you know one level you know just yeah. like ooh, it's a bit thicker a bit slower a bit like your heart just going you don't seem to be able to recover or manage your heart rate as easily and then you get to the top 
and then they've got all these stalls and a few restaurants and stuff. And I went and had a you know authentic sort of sausage there. That was freaking epic. <laughs> um, and and when we went up, Ross, I'm talking for a while here, but it was pretty amazing. And there's this Tibetan bloody restaurant over the way. I don't even know how you got it. Get over there if you've ever been there. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's weird how like I don't know how you get out there. You got to be a rock climber to get to the restaurant or something. <laughs> but um, when we went up, it was 20 degrees on top of the Stelvio, and that was the warmest day on record. Um, normally, you know they. The rule of thumb is the temperature, say it's 10 degrees down in the valley, just say, they say that every uh, 100 vertical metres, the temperature drops a degree. Um, that's sort of the rule of thumb. And when we started, it was at least 20 down the bottom. So anyway, it was nice and warm. Didn't even need to put on a jacket, you know, out of concern that you get really too cold. So that was that. And then finally, we descended. We went past the turn off to Bormio, back down the other side. So we're in the Giro, they went down that valley um, to Bormio. We didn't go that way. We went to the Umbral Pass and then dropped down to, I think the little town was called Santa Maria, which was a very Swiss type of Alpine, um, Italian town. And yeah, we were flying down that descent. It was like 25K descent, um, some rough roads, some, some actually some sketchy little bits which weren't um, barricaded at all. That was frigging awesome. Then you come down into some, some pine trees and it's just yeah. classic Alpine territory. So... Yeah, it can't be overstated. It's worth it. Shit. I, watching that stage the other night, I was like, shit, I forgot how good that was. I want to do that again. Yeah, well, we will. We will. But, yeah, mate, it's, it's sensational to hear from someone who's actually done it because, as I said, you, you see it unfolding on television and it just looks like that, that it, it's sort of scripted in a movie and mm. they've hand-built these roads just to, you know, to, to follow the script sort of thing. It's just unbelievable to, to see it. The so, and it. And the roads are incredible. Like the engineering to get the roads on that mountain, it's pretty bloody good effort engineering-wise. Yeah. And I don't think they've been redone for a while. Italians love a cracked road. They just let do them once and that's it. <laughs> How would you go, Scotty, on the descent? You obviously would have worn a jacket, would you? Or uh, Yeah, I did wear one because just because I thought, oh, what if I do get cold on the descent? But in the end, I didn't need it. So, like I said, it was pretty warm. Um, yeah. There was 20 degrees at the top. So, yeah, it wasn't too much of an issue. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine that if it was super fresh and quite brisk and you're thinking that, geez, it's going to be cold on the way down, you would have had time to stop. You're not in a race. You would have time to stop and just yeah. put that jacket on. Unlike yeah. Joy Hindley and Wilco Kelderman, <laughs> They oh. couldn't get their freaking jackets on properly. I mean, that, fucking hell. Like, that was so stressful. That oh. was so stressful. That was stressful. I was shitting myself that something really bad was going to happen when they were doing that. I didn't think I'd ever be screaming at the television, put your fucking <laughs> jacket on. Oh. Oh. Like, Kelderman threw his away. On the yeah. descent. And, which, and he, he was only putting on a, um, like a gabber, you know, like a short sleeve short jacket sleeve. too. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's probably cost 350 bucks, but it, uh, no, throw it away. I don't need it. Hindley yeah. almost crashed trying to get his arm in. He's, it seemed to take an hour to get that arm into his jacket. Anyway, yeah. He got it in, but I don't think he could zip it up. No, he couldn't. He couldn't zip it up then. Yeah, he almost crashed into the wall, didn't he? And then, he, then when they got up the top, it's almost like the last little switchback or the last two sort of ramps to the summit so it's starting to flatten out and you know the crowd are either side you know and he's he's sitting on the wheel of dennis and gagenhart and he's at the back and he's sitting up on you know out of his saddle no hands still trying to get the jacket on and i'm like don't don't do it mate because the, the crowd could just you know they could just step out like he was getting close to the crowd it was so stressful yeah yeah 
Well, it's interesting you talk about it, Craig, because I had this, and I think I might have told you, I had this scenario playing out where I thought maybe he could word up someone in the crowd to run alongside him and actually zip it up for him because he he had an inability to do it himself. But it was just fucking diabolical. Like, how did that how could that happen at the, the that, top level? That oh. bloody sl- yeah, that that sleeve that he had the left hand sleeve oh. in, but he just could not get the right arm in it, and it just wouldn't open up for him. You know, you know when you're doing it, you're jiggling it around, and you hope it, eventually it's gonna, it's just gonna open up for me, and I'll slide in. You know, just yeah. gonna be steady. It just wouldn't do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, was, that was amazing. That was and, really- and, and, uncomfortable shifting in your seat watch just edge it around mate. You, you, you're nearly there you're nearly there oh, yeah gosh. yeah that's right so there's like two parts where it was like just get him not being able to get it on and then the concern he, he, like i said he, he almost rode into a wall so but the good news was that he he had the long sleeve jacket so he had the jacket over his arms and then he rode the whole descent it was fucking freezing too because yeah. we're talking you know october he rode that whole descent with the jacket open um, but at least he had the sleeves. I guess I'm assuming that's where people are going to, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I, I know I get cold on my arms, not necessarily the body, yeah. but other people might Other people might be completely. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, yeah, you can be grateful for that warm arms, but geez, would have, they would have been cold, well, particularly Calderman. Yeah. But then there was an interesting one, and I actually listened to the Lance Armstrong podcast, The Move, mm. um, and they were talking about what sort of happened after that. So, Johan Brunel brought up with the fact that somewhere had so you get two cars for that mm. for each stage. So there was one car that was with the Gruppetto and the other car was following Healy. So Kelderman, who was actually the race leader at mm. that point, had to be left. They virtually gave him a bottle and drove off on him because there was only yeah, the one yeah. car. So then they took off and uh, basically tended to, to Himley the whole time. And yeah. Kelderman was seen shaking. I don't know if you remember seeing Kelderman shaking his yeah. head thinking, I'm leading the race and my team car won't even sort of look after me. It was a bizarre setup. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, perhaps that they made a mistake there because, look, it's one thing for Kelderman to be agile enough in his thinking that, oh, hang on, I'm the race leader, the team's riding for me, and now Hindley's got better legs, okay, we'll just let him go. The team says, yeah, we're going to let him ride. Yeah. Okay, that's one thing. But then when your second team car comes up and gives you a bottle, then pisses off <laughs> See you, mate. and you're yeah. riding on your own, you're sort of riding tempo on your own to try and just sort of stay within earshot of those leading group. Yeah. Like you could, uh, yeah, you could get a bit uh, angry and like, ah, oh, what the fuck? What's the point? You know, a bit like buddy Brad Wiggins when Chris Froome was stronger than him in the tour and he was going to walk out and yeah. quit. Yeah, they might have had a logistics meeting that night, I reckon, someone <laughs> just said, listen, uh, what do you think we should do with the uh, the team cars tomorrow? Um, <laughs> might have been some raised voices here or there, mate. While we're on Sunweb, just really quickly, I heard an interview with Nicholas Roach, and he was saying that because the racing schedule was completely different this year and, and there was a lot of time when riders were on their own, doing their training, couldn't get together, you know, couldn't do things together, they did a lot of meetings. They did weekly catch-up meetings in, in small groups, individual meetings, progress checking, like almost just like a coaching engagement, checking in. Yeah, right. And they also did some tactical education. Because they had such a young squad, they did tactical classes, race classes. So things like, okay, if our GC guy gets a puncher, does one guy stay back? Does the whole team wait for him? Does no one? All that. So they just went through a whole lot of scenarios, which normally you would pick up across time as a racer. Yeah, so they took a really um, a really direct approach. Yeah. And I was listening to the interviewers and they were like amazed at this. Oh, that's amazing that, that they would do that. But it's like, I don't know, you and I have done a fair bit in footy. Uh, that's just par for the course. Yeah. Um, most organizations are having team meetings once a week. So I haven't worked inside a pro cycling team, but 
what the fuck are they doing? Maybe it's the broadcasters that don't have a clue that they were amazed by this. Maybe they are the ones that don't know. But one of the broadcasters was an ex-pro. And he's like, yeah, that's really interesting. Different they do that. And it's like, mate, what are you doing? You just put them on the hamster wheel and wait till they get fit and then you fucking throw the eggs at the wall and see which ones stick on race day. Yeah. Yeah, in some ways, like, why haven't you been doing that for decades? It's just a normal course of development, really, isn't it? Like in every other sport. Yeah. Um, But it obviously must be not commonplace uh, if it caused so much surprise. But you do see it a bit, don't you, Scotty, where the questions come out. I know it can be a little bit dividing when different commentators are talking about, oh, should they go back? Like, let's take that Hindley and Kelderman incident. I was a bit dumbfounded. There was talk that Hindley should have gone back to ride with Kelderman. Like, why would you do that? I mean, Mm. you're obviously Mm. on the legs, you keep going, you know, and you could be the new leader, which you ended up being, but other teams mustn't do it because it happens a shitload where they make tactical blues that young guys like the Sunweb team aren't sort of across as much as some other teams, I guess. But yeah, yeah, um, Yeah. it it obviously worked. And it was obviously in the Hindley and Kelderman case, that was what was spoken about in their development meetings, if you like. Yeah, yeah, and Nicholas Roach said that that was a major factor in their success at the tour and everything. So he felt like basically he got them all on the same page. It kept monitoring them and helping them, you know, week to week. Just that clarity. Had a young group, so it's almost like fast tracking their tactical awareness. Of course, you can't do it until you've experienced it, but at least it, as it's happening in front of your eyes, at least you're a little bit prepared. Okay, yeah. okay we've covered this in that session, that meeting. So yeah, that'd be super yeah. interesting meetings to sit on, wouldn't that? Just have a listen to it. It'd be almost like a choose-your-own-adventure. Righto. So if Mark Hirschi goes up the road and mm. someone gets a flat behind you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Oh, 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 oh shit. Uh, attack? <laughs> attack? I'm going to go, aren't I? Yeah. No, you fucking that, idiot. You is that what I'm meant to do? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Social phobia on Zoom. Uh, well, um, you know, what are they? What are, oh, fuck. What do they want me to say? What do they want to say? Uh, I'll just wait for the instructions. That's when you talk to me in my earpiece. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I just do, just do whatever Wilco says. He's a team leader. Scotty, I want to talk a little bit about a team who had the winner in the Giro, Ineos. Mm. They won seven stages and took out the overall, obviously, with Gergen mm. Hart. And their director sportive, Dirty Dave Brailsford, who is a big fan of this show. We're in regular dialogue with Dirty Dave, and he's clearly um, wanting to get on board. Dirty Darth. Yeah, Dirty, Dirty Darth, even. Dirty Darth Brailsford. Dirty yeah. Darth Brailsford. He's starting to reveal himself. That's because right. I'm just starting to think that we mentioned that he's taking his mask off uh, in episode mm. seven. Well, yeah. episode eight... I've got some quotes for you which may just expand that original thought. Mm. Here's what he was quoted as saying after Giro. We've done the defensive style of riding, but the sport is about emotion. We're grenadiers now. What I like about this is we've done the train, we've done the defensive style of riding and won a lot doing that. But it's not as much fun, really, compared to this. Dirty Darth is talking about having fun. Can you believe this? Yeah, I mean, expressing yourself and you know, getting your fulfilment and satisfaction from the races, that's important. And they're going to pay me 500,000 euro to do that, to feel good in a race. He actually went on to talk about, he sort of went back and reminisced about his, you know, this is why we started riding a bike, yeah, you know, yeah. the pure joy of it. Yeah. <laughs> Who's feeding these quotes to? This is, <laughs> this is an extraordinary turnaround. 
Fucking, he's had he's had a few ecstasies before he had the interview, and like, and doesn't it just smack of someone who's just won the Giro and he's having a couple of cocktails with a bloke and he's talking about all these things, and the next day he'll just go back to fucking lockdown, locking <laughs> shit down because Dave wants to make sure. Despite his growth and becoming more human, less machine, yeah. he still wants to make sure. Yeah, maybe the image consultant might say, hey, Dave, um, I'm just starting to get a little bit concerned that you might be uh, just softening a little bit. Can you just mm. get back to giving death stares and um, being a real hard bastard? Because there's this podcast yeah. in Australia that's fucking picked up on it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's starting to cause havoc. It was an absolutely sensational Giro. I mean, we've covered the tour and that was one of the best tours we've seen. And the Giro was, you know, it had everything. Mm, yeah. It was sensational. It really was. Jao Almeida, he did well too, like 17, what is he, 21 or 22 years of age and he's 17 days in pink. So that was a phenomenal effort. And also some of them were pretty gritty where he had to hang on too. That was a phenomenal ride by him. Oh, I didn't realise he's a neo craze. His first year, I thought, shit, that yeah. puts even more weight in it. That's bloody unbelievable. Yeah. But um, good on Ineos because, yeah, they're far out. They got the GC, won seven stages. It's incredible. Yeah. So, again, the ball's in Buddy Gerrits. Thomas is caught, isn't it, really? So we mentioned, Scotty, that we've been blessed with our Grand Tours. Tour was epic. The Giro was epic. La Vuelta is heading in the same direction. Primoz Roglic has mm. won three stages now. He's riding out of this world. And the killer Carapaz, as we take this, they're both in the same GC time. That's mm. fucking unbelievable. And I was listening to Lance Armstrong's podcast. And Lance said himself, I'll put on my best Texan voice here. Like, <laughs> Please do. Like you've got Gegenhart and Hindley on the same time. That will never, ever happen in another tour ever again. I'm telling you right now. Well, Lance, it's fucking <laughs> happened a week later, mate. <laughs> right don't forget it's 2020 the weirdest year of all time oh. and i just think the fact that Roglic, like we expect him he's a good rider he's got form of course the fact that Roglic is doing what he's doing after that you know he had an incredible tour de france and he had one bad day you know pagacha had a great day on the time trial and Roglic had a bad day everything about it was all bad and wrong but he then butters up and wins Liège, and now he goes to Vuelta, the race he won last year, and now he's he's right there and he's dominant. He, that's an impressive professional athlete for me. He's just so ex- explosive up those climbs. I'd love to know, mm. and he's probably going to let the dust settle on it, but heading into next year's tour, if his game plan changes a little bit, because I would have loved to have seen this explosiveness on a climb in the tour. Yeah. And I know he's yeah. leading, uh, he led the tour for quite a while, and it probably changed that mindset a little bit. But, geez, he's, right, that's his one would that explosive up the climb. It would have been great to mm. see unleash it a couple of times. Mm. You know that, yeah, that's right. And we saw it in the race before the Criterium de Dauphiné. What was that like? Not Lavenir or, two, you know, that French race? It was a multi, yeah. like four or five days. And that, Tour de Lane. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. He did it there a few times, you know, sprinted in the last few hundred metres out, you know, so he's almost, you know, he's on his red line and then can sprint out of there. But he didn't seem to do it at the Tour, did he? Maybe he didn't need to. Or maybe, did he, in the Pyrenees, did he sprint? And uh, Pogaccio went with him or vice versa? Did Pogaccio sprint and Roglic went with him? I don't know, but yeah, yeah, I don't mean, yeah, perhaps they could have leveraged that a little bit. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether it changes for next year. But I don't know whether you saw the stage uh, a few nights ago, Scotty. Sam Bennett was relegated in the sprint with a little bit of argy bargy, bit of shoulder charge. Yeah. Just rubbing his racing type setup. He just thought he'd just <laughs> maybe try and, try and reserve a spot somewhere in the finish. Um, did you see the footage? Did I you did. actually see the footage? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it wasn't. It was much more than rubbing racing. I, he I sort actually, of went up yeah. to a guy who's riding along next to him and just whacked his head into him twice. Yeah, I thought it might have been he just inspired from the NRL Grand Final a few nights <laughs> before, but he wanted to patch a road and he was doing anything to get it. But the thing is, he already had it. Like I know the other guy would have been looking to get the wheel, but that was weird. Maybe they had a bit of an argument earlier that day or something because it just seemed weird yeah. the way he did it. Yeah, <laughs> it was intent. It was absolute intent. Anyway, he got relegated. So yeah. he uh, he didn't get the win. He was cross the line first and then relegated. But another good friend of the show, Patrick Lefevere, what's his official title at De Kearney? I think, is he the owner yeah, I think he'd call him like team principal. Like, yeah. He's like the Darth Brailsford version. Yeah, yeah. the head on show, the big dog. Yeah. Um, yeah. He took to Twitter, which is where all good arguments get settled. His quote was, <laughs> I'm not sure how I do his accent, but I'll do it as good as I can. What a bullshit. Good. He was in his lead out and the trek rider wanted to pull him out of it. But we know already a long time the incompetence of the UCI with safety first. Oh, Patrick. Oh, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, mate, did you even look at it? It's like bullshit. Your boy did the wrong thing. Just shut up. But then I think, is he just doing the strategic? He knows he's speaking shit, but he does it anyway just to soften off the heat. So he draws the media heat and Sam Bennett doesn't get it. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like he's just flying off the handle. (laughs) <laughs> but maybe he's got us all fooled. Yeah. Well, Patrick may be well within his um, thinking to just go back to an incident that happened a little earlier in the season where one of his riders slammed into some barriers in the Tour of Poland and nearly got killed. And he wanted Dylan Gronenwagen executed, basically. Yeah. In yeah. Jail. Yeah, firing squad in jail. Yeah. I don't know whether Patrick's just he, – he's a confused man at the minute, Patrick. He, he just needs to just chill out, loosen the grip a little bit. Scotty, we're set for another exciting finish mm. and it'll just complete, complete the trilogy of this year's Grand Tours. It's at an awkward time. It makes viewing really tough, but we're going to stick with it for as long as we can this week and yeah. watch it in the closing stages because if it's Roglic and Carapaz head-to-head again, it's only going to be epic racing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It'd be really interesting to see what Carapaz can do because we thought, you know, we thought he might be able to do something at Tour. He wasn't quite there, you know, legs-wise, and that's that's fine because he wasn't preparing for that. He was preparing for the Giro. But, um, yeah, because we love Carapaz, the killer, and Roglic is a gun, so it's going to be fantastic. Mate, I want to talk about a race, and it was a one-day race, and it was in Belgium, and it was mm. called Bruges de Pan. I'm really careful in trying to, to set the scene for this because if I don't do it the justice that it deserves, I'll feel incompetent. It was just brutal in every sense of the word. The conditions were brutal. The racing was brutal. The riders were fucking brutal on their own bodies. It was truly, truly amazing. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, we discuss this because we both watched it. For me, brutal, yes. And then from a spectator point point of view, again, it was epic. And it was as epic as seeing the 2013 Milan Seam Remo when they had snow and ice and that's when they had those landslides. So, no, we, again, the Italians, agile, we won't cancel the race. We'll just move it forward around those two mountains and pick it up again. We'll get in the bus. And guys had ice on their frigging helmets. They were looking purple. And I remember seeing the footage from um, Orica Green Edge back then, you know, Mitchell, Mitchell and Scott now. Yeah. 
and Matt White, the DS there. And Matt seems to be so good with people from what you see from the outside. And he said, boys, if you don't want to go back out when the race restarts, it's totally okay. He just gave him permission. Anyway, so that was that race and that was epic. So you can get some footage of that. It's incredible. They're riding through snow and ice and amazing. Anyway, for me, this race is the most epic race, especially one day, epic race since that. It is possibly the best race I've ever seen in terms of from a one-day point of view. For those who haven't seen it, we'll we'll just try and maybe set the scene a little bit. I mentioned about setting the scene, not doing just, but we'll, we'll try we're talking about Belgian roads. You know, Belgian roads, they're basically slabs of concrete, aren't they? So petition yep. concrete, but the gaps in the road, they're probably 50 mil wide. There's a gap in, yeah. in between yeah. in between the two, two sides of the road. So they're basically bunny hopping across them if they're trying to get a good position on the road. Now, the reason yeah. they're, they're moving from side to side on the road is because in this actual race, the crosswinds were blowing at about 48 kilometres per hour. Mm. Mm. And that was when they were crosswind. Sometimes they were headwind. Sometimes it was blowing mm. up their ass and they were getting pushed forward. And then we've thrown in the quality of riders. We had Degen Cobb. We had Matthew Vanderpoel, fresh off wing Tour of Flanders. We had the tractor, Tim de Klerk. Well, who were some of the other riders in that front uh, group, Scotty? Well, Christoph was in the chasing group behind the front group. There's quite a few of Matthew Vanderpoel's team from Alpes and Phoenix, about three others in him. And then the quick step, there was about four or five guys in the quick step. Matteo Trenton was in that front group. Yeah, as well. Trentin was there. Uh, Stefan Kung was in that, I think, too. Yeah, they're, they're the main ones that we can remember. So we're talking yeah, so like about some absolute are, fucking workhorses who just yeah. know, no other way than to work their asses off in a bunch, basically. Yeah, so like if you appreciate those Belgian-style races where it's flat or even with cobble climbs in it, but the winds and that the hardness that you need to have, then this race will just give you everything. Because like you say, yeah, that, there's that gap in the road and they have to, obviously they're working in echelon, so they have to move diagonally across the road as they go up the chain in the echelon, but they've got to time that gap to be in keeping and not banging down anyone else's wheel and all that sort of stuff. And by the way, the wind doesn't just blow at a constant speed, <laughs> so... It's yeah. incredible, and we'll and we'll get to what happened uh, a bit later about what one of the riders that happened. But yes, yeah. the telecast on the replay uh, was about sixty odd k's to go, and within about five minutes, it was evident that the winds were just off the head. There was vision of riders trying to get across to form the echelon, and it was like they were headbutting the wind, trying to move yeah. move their bodies across. And it was just unbelievable winds. And basically, there was open roads, so the lead bunch was probably. 40 seconds, I think, initially, and then it worked out to a minute. And there was just constant, um, when there was opportunities to, to bust open that front group, they tried in the crosswind. So it was yeah. bikes yeah. are just trying to get clear and get clear and get clear the whole time. Yeah. They? Yeah. And there was some times when, you know, the host commentator said, well, Magnus, Magnus, you know, can you sit at the back here and just have a rest and you not have to be in the echelon? You can, you don't have to work. And he goes, no, if you sit at the back, you're like the tail and you will get snapped off because you're eating the wind the whole time as opposed to working a bit hard to go through the rotation and then getting a bit of shelter. So you, know, you either work hard or you work really hard and it gets snapped off. And then you see, you know, the times when they take it to half road, so they want to squeeze the group and not leave as much space for the echelon. So then people ask, you know, strung out the back end as a tail. And then you see guys, you see guys go, righto, and now I'm going to ride hard straight ahead with no echelon. 
And I know that I'm going to be in that wind for 20 to 30 seconds to try and create another echelon, <laughs> but a smaller bunch of groups to split the group. Like talk about the fitness and commitment to do that. The courage and the toughness that, oh, mate, this race was just incredible. Yeah. You, you haven't seen grimaces on an athlete's face until you watch the last 60 Ks of this race. They were just fucking balls out having a crack. Uh, so it's a finishing circuit. So they've done a lap. And then they had 23 Ks to about approximately 25 Ks to go. So they've gone through. And then what's happened when they've gone back out to those open roads, hence the crosswinds welcome again, they've got mm. some shitty rain coming hitting them in the face. Now, oh, yeah. the warning signs for me were out a little earlier. You saw Vanderpoel who was, I mean, he's a ballsy rider. He knows how to handle a bike with the cyclocross background. He can handle his bike pretty well. And there have been occasions in the previous 20K where he's just in that echelon. He's just sneaking into a gap on the side of the road that I watched and I thought, gee, he's playing with fire a little bit. He does like – he can – you do watch him and he's quite happy in those little tiny little tightrope spaces. Yeah. And I mean, mm. we watched him in the – was that the Euro Championships where he went up on the footpath and launched an attack yeah. off the footpath? Yeah, so yeah. He's, he's not averse to those sort of efforts. No. What happened this time, though, with those 40-plus kilometres per hour crosswinds, he had the rain hitting him and he must have just got that gust, Scotty, <laughs> hit him at the wrong time because the camera panned away and when it panned back, could you give us an insight as to where Vanderpol was? Well, he, let's just say he wasn't with the lead bunch of 12 guys. Uh, in fact, he's in a dike. He's in a ditch in a dike, which is about six foot deep, side of the road, lush, and he is dazed and confused. And it's like, here we are, Ross, three days before, you know, peacock to feather duster, not having a go at him, but just how the wheel can turn. Three days before, he's winning Flanders by a quarter of a wheel over his longtime rival in crystal clean, beautiful white nicks with no gloves, just like peak expression of athletic potential. And three days later, you're in a fucking ditch 10Ks out from the finish line. Yeah, it's a hard sport. It's a hard sport. And oh. the wind didn't apologise. So he lay there for well, what seemed like minutes. It's probably I don't know, 30, 45 seconds. And they stood him up. Uh, yeah. And he was staggering around. Like he was in all sorts, wasn't he? Yeah. He was nah. fucked. Yeah. And did you see later on then the cars came and they had to get him out of the ditch and he was a bit wobbly. And also the grass in back, the grass sort of slope of the ditch was quite steep and lush and wet. That to, <laughs> to pull him out with a rope. Did you see that? <laughs> did they? What yeah, did you notice that? Rope. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So yeah. And then so then the race went on and then it, it split again and it's like, oh my God. And guys got split off the back in this lead group of twelve or so. Yeah, so then it became like an eight. And the four, yeah. and the four that got split off, they didn't give up. And I think two, two of them got back. Got I'm back, like, yeah. oh, just stop it with your toughness. I know. Just stop it. Ross, when I grow up, I want to be a Belgian racer, mate. Oh, That's what I want. You'd be just a hard bastard. I'd introduce myself. I'm, my name's Hard Bastard. That's, <laughs> that's what I want to be known as. Um, yeah, yeah. My thoughts were, well, I couldn't pick a winner because it was just, I mean, it was a fucking lottery the way they were riding, but... When mm. Stefan Kung rejoined that group, I thought, and I know that Eve Lampard took off then. He was about 30 seconds clear when Kung rejoined. I thought, ooh, mm. good time trial. I reckon he could probably nearly catch him, but mm. uh, Lampard was just too strong in the end. 
Yeah. And so often those um, those Belgian races where they are sort of very races of attrition and someone, if they can get the timing right, you know, because he, he attacked before that, about a K and a half before that, he attacked and it got brought back. And then Tim, Tim de Klerk and the same team, he attacked and he hasn't got much acceleration. So he can hold wattage, but he probably hasn't got that ability to get a gap in the first place. So they brought him back and it was a bit windy and a bit hilly and then they were near the sand dunes of the beach. And then Lampart attacked uh, no, no, yeah, you know, he just pushed the pace forward a little bit. And this is how fucking hard this race was, Ross, and how Trenton was on Lampart's wheel, second wheel, sitting in there. Trenton pulled off the wheel, second wheel, to have a break, to get so someone right, else yeah. to come through. Roll through. And no one wanted to come through. And Lampart took a few more pedal strokes, and all of a sudden it was four metres, five metres, six metres. had another look around. You go, fuck, I'm going. And boom, and there it is. That was the moment. So... So often those Belgian races are like that. You know, someone attacks the right time when everyone else is just a little bit tired and then who, who's going to do the work? Oh, God. You know, the motivation to do the work is not there because they're so cactus. Yeah. And then they're trying to play the tactical game at the same time. And then for Lampart, the solo attack, his job is simple. He just goes as hard as he can. He doesn't have to wait. He doesn't have to encourage cooperation from another rider. He doesn't have to worry about setting up for the sprint. He just goes. And by the way, Lampart's no deal, and he had form too. His form last few races, was he fifth at Flanders? Former Belgian champion. Yeah, and I mean, right. at no that deal. point, a little bit of a gap. You could almost see the, the sigh of relief from the, the Kearney quick step. Like, so going, ah, all we have to do is sit on the back here now, just hold yeah. on. And it was like... Okay, Elvis and Phoenix, are you going to push? Because they had four riders down to three now in, in that yeah. group. And they were on the front trying to, but they just fucking couldn't go. Like, they couldn't. were just empty, no. absolutely empty. That's, that's why those races are incredible. And that one was one of the best races I've ever seen. Like you say, it was brutal. It was beautiful. It was tough. It was incredible. And then did you, Ross, did you stick, stick around on the on the broadcast to see them when they crossed the line and when the Quick Step boys got together? What did you what did you think of that? Oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. It was like De Klerk, when he joined him, because he's obviously, he comes second. Like Tim De Klerk comes second, yeah. so they all won two. And he joined it. And it was just, they were just ecstatic for each other. Like they're riding part, like they were fucking loving it. It was fucking fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Because um, De Klerk, broke out of that chase group. So they had Lampart going through us and De Klerk must have broke out, you know, with about 400, 500 metres to go, you know, when they came that last bend into yeah. the final straight. He'd gone then and, again, he could hold that wattage and the others were just too tired to get him back. And he was so excited too because, you know, it doesn't, I don't think he gets too many seconds, you know, on podiums. And like you say, they just, weren't they just tight? A tight bunch, those yeah. guys. And yeah. why wouldn't you be tight after a race like that? Look, people are listening to this right now. You might be thinking, oh, yeah, come on, give us a break, move on. Mate, have a watch, watch of this it. race. Watch it. If you can't appreciate this, I don't understand you. Yeah. It is incredible. You will think, if you ride a bike and you watch 2020 Bruce Dupin, you will think, oh, all my days that I will have on a bike now are easy. Yeah. And so then, Ross, following up from that, I, uh, I watched it again because it was that good. I think, I, I think I've watched it three times to be honest. But the se- second time I watched it again, I had a training session I was doing on my bike. So, you know, I'm often, you know, on the indoor trainer, I often will watch footage or something, you know, usually it's race footage. And then for the really intense stuff, I turn off the commentary and put on the, you know, the loud music. Yeah. So I was watching this and I was trying to watch it, but it was just too hard to pay attention to the commentary with the type of training I was doing. So I was doing 40, 20, so 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off. 
five reps for a set and I did, I, on this day I did four sets. And, you know, in terms of the intensity of that 40 seconds, it would be like riding on the front of a pace line, say, I don't know, just say 40 on the flat, 40, 45 k's an hour. You know, you're, at the, you know, you're pushing hard, pushing hard, not epic, not max hard, but very, very hard and you're holding it 40 seconds, then 20 seconds rest and go again. And you got to do it five times and then you do multiple sets. So about, I was watching that, that race again there. But um, the commentary had to go because it was just too hard to listen to that while I was pushing it. So I had to put on some uh, loud music. Did it change your training session in any way, do you think? Yeah, it did. Especially there's a couple of times when you had the behind view from behind that lead group. Like, do you remember that, Ross? The camera wasn't from the moto, it was just behind the lead group and it was looking at from behind view rather than the front view. And so at those stages, when I'm in that fourth or fifth rep of the set and, you know, legs are getting a bit shy and you've just got to just go for it. Uh, At those stages, I, I really sort of, put myself in that because what was happening when the camera was behind it was actually it was like you had your group of eight doing the echelon rotating echelon and then you had four or five guys on the tail trying to desperately get back into that somehow because every second they had to spend on that tail they're copping too much wind and you saw gaps happen instantly so yeah that sort of happened i used that as like okay i gotta keep riding here keep riding because i gotta get back on i did use a bit of that that is cool. That is cool because you're always in an effort. You reach that point where, oh, bad to pop, bad to pop, bad to pop. Mm. So you actually had something that you could measure by that was visual as well, like yeah. you're out on the road. Yeah. That's cool. And you know what? While we're on this, Ross, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, in our, in our own riding uh, about being present and how that can allow, you know, your full sort of potential and performance to come out. And, you know, not thinking about the future, not worrying about what might be happening or can you keep on or can you stick with the group or whatever. And I had it in this training session. So I'll say it again, 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off, five reps. So that's a five minute set, five minute recovery. I did it four times on this day and I'm going to build up to say six times. So in my mind, I'd done a few uh, of the same training sessions, but 10 rep sets and it was just too hard. I couldn't get through 10 reps. But since then, I've learned that maybe 10 was too many anyway. So I was a bit scared about this session. And the first set of the four, the first set was the hardest. And that was where I had the most mental noise. And it was also where I had the most resistance to the work, you know, cycle, like just, oh, you know. And then after the first set, you know, a minute after into the recovery, it's like, oh, shit, I don't know, you know, that, that old one. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this training session. Yeah. So I'm telling you this because it's a it sort of illustrates what yeah. we've been talking about and other, what, hopefully other people could, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking as you were saying, what did you feel when you got that chatter happening? What part of your body did you feel at first? Like what was the first to raise the question marks with your head? Yeah, for me, it's actually in the legs. Um, my lungs don't seem to, yeah, it's in the legs. It's like, and I, the best word I can use to describe it is just shy. The legs are shy. They've done 30 seconds of work. They just shy. They just want to back away from 40 seconds of the work. How did you get through it, Scotty? How did you yeah, work so, through that period? So, yeah, it was interesting. I um, I noticed I, you know, got a bit worried after the first set and the middle into the recovery, and then a few more minutes went, and then I'm okay, start feeling better. Okay, all right, next set. And next set was fine. I just hooked into it. And there's actually the third and fourth set with my strongest because in the third set, I put on the loud music too, so I really revved it up. And by the fourth set, even though I was more fatigued, it was the easiest because there was no mental noise at all. And I'd stopped trying to almost pace my effort because I wasn't worried about being able to finish it now because it's like five. I was just going for it. 
I was just going for it. Okay, 20 seconds. Yeah, I'm tired. So, you know, sometimes with 20 second recovery, you're like, oh, shit, I'm, you know, you know, off oh, another five seconds. Oh, God, it's only three seconds to go. I've got to go. But none of that. I was just like, yep, yeah, go. So it was like the eyes rolled back and it was just animal instincts. And I'm not trying to be, you know, wanky here. So the mind, my mind, my chattering mind, my thinking mind was gone and I was just doing it. Yeah. And so that's another version of being really present. So the mind was out of the way. It wasn't adding anything. It wasn't telling stories. It wasn't creating thoughts. I was just like, yep, on, off, on, off, on, off, yeah. you know, each rep. Yeah. So, it was, yeah, it's very interesting, you know, so the mind was very active in the first set, you know, like I said, avoiding the work, resisting the work, um, but it was all based on what was going on in my head, you know, and it's yeah. almost like you have to sort of smash through that sometimes, you know. Yeah. So we talk about, and we mentioned before, just allowing that potential to come out when we're in those situations. So mm. having the opportunity to be present. Now that you've done that session, so it's in the bank, and now that the dust has settled on it after it, has your thoughts on it changed any in terms of how you might approach that now? Yeah. And yeah. would you do anything different to give yourself the best opportunity not to hit that mental wall a little bit now? Yeah, that's a good question. So what I learnt or I've been reminded of is just to fucking go for it. So that sort of avoidance of the work, I want to do the work, I want to do the training and I have suffered before so I can do it. I'm not going to die on the fucking rollers. So there's that idea of conserving your energy, being afraid of the discomfort, conserving your energy like what if I blow up and can't do the session? You know, these, these just these subtle thoughts that are in the back, you almost can't even hear them, feel them. But now it's like, no, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to switch the fucking mind off right Roll the eyes back, animal, sort of just animal approach, just go for it. And if I blow up, just going for it in the second set of four or six, that's fine. But at least I'm not making the same mistake, the same pattern of trying to sort of almost overly control it with my thinking, which ended up just getting in the fucking way anyway. So to just go for it, don't, yeah, almost like don't think, just go for it and just see what happens. And if I'm going to make an error, blow up on that side of it rather than the cautious side of it, the cautious, fearful side of it. So it's almost like for every set's the last set effectively. Mm, That's a similar mindset. Yeah. yeah, and really attack it too. Like, um, yeah, I think I was in hindsight looking back now, I'm probably a little bit guarded about it because I think I, I was guarded. Was like, oh fuck, because I'd strip the ten rep sets down to seven, and then I've realised like, oh, it's got to go to five. And I think I was a bit worried, you know, like, am I going to be able to get through this? In a, again, I was sort of worried about my performance because I want to be able to do five reps continuously and then do the, all the sets. But with the 10 and the seven rep sets on previous sessions, I'd had to have little mini breaks in it. So I was almost anxious about my performance, uh, maybe a bit concerned about the discomfort that involved. But again, all that doesn't matter when you just fucking go. Yeah. And, you know, your mind makes more suffering than your bloody body does. Yeah, it triggers everything down the up top. Yeah, so it was just a real nice contrast. And to be honest, that arousal level and the mood generated by what I was seeing, so it was the critical stage of that Brugge de Pana race, and then the music I had in my ears, you know, loud as fuck, loud as I could get it. <laughs> so arousal levels are up. You know, there's less room for noise to come in. The signal is clear. I'm interested and I'd like to just unpack that arousal thing a little bit because yeah. I think back to uh, to footy and I had some ups and downs in terms of where my arousal levels would sit mm. and I couldn't find any consistency. I managed to appreciate it later in my career when I was a little bit more attuned to it, but I assumed that if I was aroused and, and I was, you know, for want of a better term, banging my head on a locker, that that's meant I was going to play better. Yeah. Where yeah. in actual fact, that curve needed to be, you know, a lot more in tune to with 
with calmness and, and maybe level-headed thinking. So, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, it's interesting that you got to that super arousal level where you had the loud music. Is that going to work? What percentage of time do you think as opposed to the calmness? Or can you find a balance easy there or does that yeah. change a lot? For me... I tend to be someone who performs better when I've, I've get myself up. I, I've never, no, in terms of sport performance, because I've played a few different sports and I've had a good commitment to all of them, um, I've never, never been over aroused. So, yeah, I'm a guy who's probably too relaxed, too low, too low key, not, not relaxed. I'm spinning too low yeah. and I need to get spinning faster. So, yeah. yeah, I've got, I could probably afford to, you know, you know, aim left to kick center, if that makes sense, if I'm yeah. always missing right. Because again, that's almost like that pumps up that signal so strongly, that focus signal, that there's less room for the noise and the extra thoughts to come in. Because it's that signal is so strong and so, um, you know, like an ember that's being fanned, like it's such a powerful thing. So then there's less time and space for bullshit thoughts that don't help. And like you say, some people need to compose a bit more, but just bring it down a little bit for their optimal level of arousal or performance. I've just got one last thing. I just want to call on your high-performance background. The 2019 winner of the Tour de France, Egan Bernal, I just come across some quotes from him in the last week that just had me thinking a little bit, and I'm sure it might trigger something in your uh, high-performance brain. Um, and it went like this. The problem is that one leg is longer than the other. This caused curvature in my back, hitting a disc in my spine that should normally supply glucose to my legs. Now, long-term rehab to get the disc that's moved back into place will be required, but surgery won't be. So, Scotty, have you ever come across this before? I'm intrigued by it, but I'm also a little bit gobsmacked at it. It's fucking unbelievable. Well, yeah. Well, was he saying his legs were perfect length last year, was he, when he won? Well, you can only assume that they were. Someone, um, yeah, someone hit one of his, like, you know, that movie Misery where she hits him with a wooden mallet <laughs> to break his legs when she captured him. You know, it keeps the rider in the bed the whole time. This reminds me of, you know, a couple of classics. Like, remember when Bernard Tomic, he went out in the third round in, at Wimbledon a few years ago? And in the press conference, he goes, oh, yeah, I probably should have got a bit fitter before I came here. Just wasn't fit enough. It's like, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Two things. One, Bernard, I don't, I don't want to fucking hear that. I don't want to hear that you don't think you're fit enough to play because what the fuck are you doing? And two, this is your event, mate. You're a grass court play. This is your only hope to perform. What the hell are you talking about? I don't want to hear it. But most of all, I just don't want to hear that fucking bullshit out of your mouth, you bloody muppet. Oh, so, so yeah. yeah. Look, we're hopeful that in 2021, or it doesn't worry me, but I'm sure Ineos are hopeful that that glucose could get into his legs next year. Well, um, no, they're going to, yeah, we've already discussed this because um, we know that uh, climbing cyclists have balsa wood bones and they've got to drink their calcium, their milk. So he's going to drink the milk, but he's only going to drink it down his left side of his throat. So that leg grows an extra centimetre to become equal length again, and then the whole system is just equalised, calibrated, aligned. That's what we do here. That's what we do on Half Wheel. We not only are cycling fans, we also seemingly can fix medical problems and sort shit out, basically. Hey, you know, that's funny, though. In all seriousness, that sort of thing, there's a chance that he got told this, right? But ignorance is bliss. The body is an amazing thing. It can be quite imperfect and still perform pretty well, you know, for all of us, right? Yeah. But when you go to especially Western, you know, medicine diagnosis, they'll go, oh, diagnose you, and they'll see, they'll look for problems. Oh, this is out. Oh, your disc is worn here. And it's like, but hang on a minute, two weeks ago, the disc was still fucking worn, and I had no pain. So what's going on? <laughs> so Western medicine looks at the, the static structures 
and goes, oh, here's the problem. But functionally, you can still be okay. So it's like he might, he prob- like I said, he probably had it, he's had it for years. We've yeah. been performing. I'm not saying being weak or anything like that. I'm just sort of saying, you know, sometimes you can get these diagnoses, but you've been carrying them forever and you've been fine. Yeah. So it's not often as simple as what the scan shows sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Anyway, we'll watch that one with interest, Scotty, I reckon. But really, uh, I don't think Dave Brailsford would have been happy with that press release from Bernal. He'd be like, oh, Jesus Christ, just shut the fuck up. Hey, you've already, a little, you know, just on the phone, Egan, you know, I love you, you're from Colombia. You've already cost me a fucking tour to France. Just shut up for the rest of the year. Get on your fucking bike and pedal. You know, if you've got to fix that fucking disc, fix it, but just shut up. (laughs) But... But would he? Because he's new age, Dirty Dave. Now he's all about fun, mate. He might True. oh, he might have said, True. "Oh, Egan, you scallywag." Yeah. yeah, yeah. He might have like, yeah, put the fear of death into Egan just by being kind and nice. Yeah. And he goes, "Oh, fuck that! I'm going to get this shit sorted." I'm <laughs> I'm just, on my block. I can't, I can't handle else. this guy. <laughs> can't handle him. Oh, mate, it's been awesome again. Yeah, great to have a chat. Great to bring you listeners episode eight. If you drop into our DMs on Instagram or do whatever you have to do, but uh, we'd love to get you involved in the show and we appreciate all your support. Mm. And I was thinking too, Ross, uh, we want to start doing a few interviews and we've got a few people lined up as well, just interesting people, interesting topics that they can talk about. But if anyone's got anyone or you know a topic they would like to hear about or an expert yeah. or anything like that, we're happy to take suggestions and we'll yeah. see what we can do. Yeah, shit, yeah, absolutely. We would. Yeah, we're looking forward to the next phase of our podcast, which doesn't include Morgan's Board of Racing that we've had <laughs> thus far. So uh, we're looking forward to yeah, chatting to some different characters in and around Scotland, basically. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Good on you, Ross. Thanks, mate. Nice one, mate.